All right, so grab a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter four. Uh, be close to chapter five, though. We're going to get into a little bit of both of those today. Before we get there, I want to, again, set up a little bit. I know we got people coming in new and everything else. So let me just kind of give you guys a recap, a little brief update on where we're at as we're going through the entire book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a book of the Bible where Paul, he's writing to a group of people who are experiencing life, coming into this new life with Christ. And he's trying to help them understand how to be Christians in the culture that they're in. He says, you're in Christ, all right, but you're also in Ephesus, which is our dilemma too. We are in Christ, but we're also in McDonald. We're also in Henry County. We're also in Georgia. We're also in America. We are in Christ, but we're also this. And Paul's trying to help them figure out how in the world to navigate life between those two tensions. So he starts off by first telling them who they are in Christ. And he tells them what they need to do in Christ. He tells them, here's what God has done. Now here's what you do because of that. And he makes it very clear that if you get this backwards, if you start trying to figure out what to do before you figure out who your life's going to go off the rails and you may be okay for a little while, but eventually you're going to find yourself in a ditch, figure out what God has done, who God is and who you are in him. And then, and only then, can you begin to figure out how in the world do I live this new life that is in me out? And that's the idea that he leaned into last week. We talked about Paul, how he said, I need you guys. And he's talking to the church in Ephesus and the church in McDonough. He says, we're gonna put off our old life, not just our old ways, our whole old life. And we're gonna put on our new life, our new life that's in Christ. And he begins to tell them some of the key indicators of this new life. He says, we're going to put off lying and we're gonna put on truth. We're going to put off stealing and we're going to put off, put on generosity. We're going to put off sinful anger. We're going to put on righteous anger. We're going to put off bitterness and we're going to put on forgiveness. We're going to put off foolish, just stupid, just kind of out there words. And we're going to speak words that actually matter, that have a great approach. We're going to put these things on. And the reason he tells them this track with me here, the reason he tells them these things is not just so that they're good people who don't lie, cheat, or punch people in the throat when they get mad at them. That's not his goal. His goal is not to make them nice people. His goal is to un help them understand that Jesus didn't die on a cross and raise to new life so that they could just have a nice life. He did all those things so that they could have new life in him. He doesn't want to make you nice. He wants to make you new, new. And he says, the way that this happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is gonna be living and active in you and it's empowering you to guide, be guided into this new life that's only made available in Christ. It is what will help you allow all those old things about the old way you used to operate fall away so that when people bump into you, they feel Jesus because his new life is shining through every breath you take. So the passage we're gonna read, hopefully you're in Ephesians by now, Ephesians four, we're gonna start in verse 25. I'm gonna tell you this and kind of show you what I'm showing you to be able to help you see in context what Paul is doing. As we noticed last week, we had a great conversation in my community group about these things that we talked about because they were incredibly practical. We leaned into things like, here's how you get angry, but don't sin. We leaned into telling the truth all the time. We leaned into work so that you can give money away. We leaned into what does it look like to be bitter or to rage or to slander somebody. And we talked about some very practical, like boots on the ground, living our life kind of stuff. But what we noticed as Paul does this, he's constantly zooming in to like the weeds of your life and the things you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And then he zooms way out and gives you this big God theological perspective to help you understand why and how you can actually do that practical thing. And so as I read this passage, pick up on that. See the times where Paul is explaining and by the power of the Holy Spirit explaining these natural things, how we're supposed to do these things, but then watch as he zooms back out to say things like, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And watch as he zooms back out and says, walk in love as Christ loved you. 
Here's what he says. Start in verse 25. We'll go all the way to uh, chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully with his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may be able to have something to share with those in need. And do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for bringing others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He just zoomed way back out to the Holy Spirit in the day of redemption. And then listen to him as he he zooms back in. And get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Now watch as he zooms back out. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as Christ and God forgave you. Here's going to be our two verses today. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now listen to the hard right turn he makes back down into the weeds of our life. So he just said, live a life of love, just as Christ loved us as a, and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Like only Paul can make a right turn like that. All right, you're God's love. He's your child. Stop having sex with people that aren't your spouses. All right, only Paul. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this, you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an adulterer, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. All right, you caught that. I mean, he's, he's zooming in and zooming out, getting into the practical things like, tell the truth, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then he comes through and he says, you know, be kind and tenderhearted. Forgive people as the way Christ forgave you. Walk in love as Christ loved himself or loved us and gave himself up for us. And then don't be sexually immoral and don't slander and don't be greedy. And he talks about kingdom inheritance. See what Paul's doing, again, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, is he's helping us understand that if you don't first and foremost understand the bigger picture of what God has done and the theological aspects of these things, there's no way you're able to be able to live these things out in your life. And so today, I'm, I know I told you guys a little bit last week, I kind of joked around, hey, next week we're only into sexual morality. Make sure you bring your grandma to church. Uh, she'll love it. Um, we're not actually gonna hit that this week. And here's why. If I glazed over 5.1 and 5.2 in order to start telling you all the practical things that you need to do in order to live a sexually pure life and to live a life freed from greed and live a life that is moralistically on the plane that Jesus wants it to without really leaning into verses one and two, you would never be able to live out what actually happens in verses three through 10. And so what I'm gonna do today is really just spend the most of my time talking about those two verses about what does it mean to be imitators of God as dearly loved children? Because my hope and my prayer, and I'm confident in this, that if you can grasp what those two things mean, if you can understand the why and the what God has done to make you his child, 
then you can actually begin to imitate him. You can actually live a life as a dearly loved child that walks in the way that he walks. So let's dive into our passage. First of all, one of the things I want to teach you is Paul writes the book of Ephesians as a, it's not really a book in essence, it's truly a letter. Now, when you write letters to people, which most of us don't ever do that anymore, we just send text messages, but you don't do it in text messages, you don't do it in letters that you write, you're definitely not putting chapters in your letters, are you? And verse numbers in your letters, you're not that important. You're not doing that with the stuff you write. And Paul was the same way. These chapter and verses were put in the Bible by scholars to be able to help God's people be able to get to these passages faster to be able to find references and he had to help them memorize them. And so all these chapter breaks are not things that are there like written and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. These are us kind of coming after the fact and putting breaks in things so that we can better understand them. So what you need to understand here is the context and the idea that Paul is talking about here at the end of chapter four is really kind of contained in here. I think this chapter break right here from 432 to 51 really isn't the best chapter breaks. I would put it right before, I would start chapter five when we started talking about sex, but that's just me, all right? I didn't, I didn't figure all this stuff out. I'm just commentating right now. So in order to stand what in the world he says at 5.1, which is therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, we don't just from there start going down into verse two, three, four, five, and six. Anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to see why it is therefore. And to find that you gotta look this way. You have to look back up, all right? So what he said before this was be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators. So this imitators, what is this pointing back to? This is pointing back to primarily forgiving people the way for God forgave you. That's primarily what it points to because if you just come to verse five, five, five verse one, you go, okay, I'm just supposed to be imitator of God. And you're just left with all of the things of God to go, well, which one should I imitate today? That's not what I think Paul was actually after when he wrote these words. He was trying to help them understand. Again, go back and look at all the things we talked about last week. They all had to do with handling conflict within the body of Christ. Anger, stealing, slander, um, using words to lift people up in, in the right time. All of them had to do with how we operate as a church family and the way we do things, me to you and you to me. And so he's saying, if we are gonna walk in love, if we're gonna truly imitate God, the very first and foremost thing we have to imitate is the way he forgives us because we are going to, without a doubt, offend each other. You're gonna sin against me, I'm gonna sin against you. And so we're gonna have to be sinners who realize that we first and foremost have been identified as sinful people, forgiven by Christ, then I can go and forgive somebody else. So the point he's trying to make here is be imitators of God as beloved children. So there's three key things in verse 32 and 5.1 that you have to understand. He's calling out three things. Forgiveness, imitating God, and you being a child. And if you can understand how these, this three chord strand works together, you can understand so much about the gospel. In order to understand it, we're gonna have to go backwards to Ephesians 1, all right? Track with me here. Uh, let's go to Ephesians 1, verse 4 back half of verse four and then verse seven. It says, in love, he, that he is God, in love, God predestined us for adoption. Okay, so that last verse of five, or five one said, you are what? Beloved, okay? 
So if you were adopted prior to being beloved children, what were you? An orphan. You were not a beloved child. You were out there on your own, not as a, a brand new bought in, predestined for adoption child. So he in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is the only way that that happens according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, lean in here, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So when he says these words right here, be imitators of God as beloved children. The thing that you have to understand is this imitator. He's saying the primary, the big thing I need you to lean into, the thing I want you to imitate the most is being quick to forgive. And here's why. You've got to understand that without forgiveness, you don't have a father. It is through the father's forgiveness made possible to you by his son's sacrifice that you can be brought into the family. You don't get sonship or daughtership without blood. No bloodshed, no adoption. Your adoption papers are written in the blood of Christ. And it is through that shed blood of Christ that now our debts have been paid. We have been redeemed. That's the redemption that made a way for our forgiveness to be able to take place. So we've been forgiven. If I put my faith in Jesus' blood, I put my faith in his resurrection power. I surrender my life to him. Now I have been a recipient of that forgiveness. And because I've received that forgiveness, I now have this new life and not just new life, I have a new father. I've been adopted because that father treated his son, his one and only begotten son, the way I deserve to be treated. Now I get treated the way he deserved to be treated, loved, cared for, high and lifted up, given every spiritual blessing that is made available in Christ. All the stuff that we read about in Ephesians 1 and 2, I am told that I am his workmanship created in Christ for good works which have been prepared in advance for me. All these things are now made available. So when he comes on the scene and he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, you've got to understand that if he just puts a period here and says, be an imitator of God, he is every other major world religion. Do what your God does. Live these holy things out. If you do it good enough, you'll go from being a caterpillar to a person to a even better person and then a better person and a better person. And then one day you'll reach Nirvana. If you do it bad, you're going to go from being a person to a ringworm. I don't know, something. At the end of your life, if you imitate your God enough and you do enough of those good things and your good outweighs your bad, well, then you get to go be with that God. See, Christianity is the only religion. It's the only, it is the only major philosophy of how life on this planet should operate that says, imitate your God, not to get his approval, not to get his acceptance, not to get the things that he has, not to get nirvana, not to get to heaven, not to get to the afterlife, not to get 140 virgins. He says, imitate your God because you're his child. Now this, this changes things because now I know I'm not trying to live a life to get it. I'm living a life because I've Got it. And this is what John 1 is all about. I think this will help you maybe understand what in the world I'm after here. 1 John 3, 1 through 2. Let's just kind of piece this apart a little bit so it'll help us understand what it means in the world to imitate God as his love children. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Now, he's writing to Christians. A misconception 
probably within the church, but definitely within the world, is, is we would say things like this. And it sounds okay. And there is a hint of, of truth to it in one sense, but not in the sense that I think it's intended when it's said. But we'll say things like, we're all God's children. Everybody, everybody out there, we're all God's children. That's not the New Testament. That's not the gospel. We got through reading a couple of chapters earlier in Ephesians. He said, you are sons of disobedience. Like, and, and that's what he calls Satan. He's saying, you were not God's children. Well, now, track me before you give up on Jesus. There is a John 3.16 kind of love, a love we actually sang about in song two today, that God so loved the whole wide world. Now, God totally loves the whole entire world, but there is a belovedness that is reserved for his children. There's a belovedness that is reserved for those who freely surrender to what his son did on the cross and accept what the son did so that they can be sons and daughters themselves. There is a belovedness that he's talking about here. He says, this, see what kind of love this is? This is a different than God just loves the whole entire world. This is a father love that says he has a love of the father and he's given it to us so that we should be called children of God. Not tenants, not employees, children. I love it. And so we are. <laughs> and then this next one, this really helps us understand it. And it helps us understand why life is hard. Here's the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You know what's crazy? Is that just, that's not just talking about everybody else out there. That's talking about you too. You're part of the world. The reason that you don't know that you're a child of God is because maybe you have not really realized how he is the son of God. He goes on here, continue on in his thought in verse three. He says, beloved, get this. <laughs> we are God's children now, like right now. Like the moment my two boys were born, they were my kids right then. They didn't have to become my children. They were born. They were born my kids. They're born right now. And when you're born again, that's your truth too. You are born now as a child of God. You didn't have to work your way into it. We are, we are God's children now. And track with me here. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Hold up. Well, that maybe explains why I'm a child of God, but I'm still struggling with sin. I am a kid, but all that I will be as a son, it has not fully yet appeared. See, this verse is explained to us why we can be children of God, but not fully experience all of what it looks like to be his son or his daughter yet. He's saying we exist, and you've heard me talk about this before. We exist in the already, not yet. You are already there. It's in your bloodline. It's who you are. The same way if you took a, a, a two couple, a couple and they got married together and the, the wife is six foot seven and the husband is seven foot one. Now inside of this kid's bloodline is what? Ridiculous height. But when he's born, you don't see that. You see a baby. But because you know the parents, you know what's coming, right? God's making the same point here. He's saying, <sighs> It's coming, it's in there, but it has not yet appeared. Now he's gonna give us some hope here. He says, but we know that when he appears, Jesus appears, we shall be like him. This is where we're talking about the whole mimic side of things because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus is pure. Let me put this in a way where maybe it makes a little bit more sense. <clears throat> These two uh, turds are mine, all right? The, this is Titus and Ezra, they are my sons. 
And to give you a little backstory, how this picture came about into existence is Saturday afternoon. I'd already finished my workout. They kind of come up, they've finished their breakfast and whatever they do on Saturday mornings. And they're out there and they come out and and I'm still kind of just sitting there. I'm done, but like they're after it. And so our garage is not a place we park cars. It's It's a place where we grunt and scream and sweat and make loud noises really early in the morning. It's a work, it's a workout facility. And these boys, they just come out there. And this Saturday, I don't know what got into them. I think the older one saw the younger one do something. He's like, oh, I ain't letting that happen. And he started doing his stuff. And, and they just get, I mean, you can tell they're working up a sweat and everything else. And then, you know, sweet little Jessica, again, pray for her. She's in the house just full of testosterone and smells. And um, she comes out and she's like, oh, boys, take a picture. And nobody had to tell these two rascals, flex on them. Like nobody had to communicate that to them. That's just what they naturally did. Why? Because that's who their dad is. It's in them. It's just in them. And I, I'm not going to show you guys because it's for her eyes only, but there's another picture with, with I'm, I'm right behind them. You see, that's me right there. Those are my Crocs right there. Like I'm in, I'm, I'm, I'm in this scene. All right. I'm not going to show you the one that's for her eyes, but like we're all in there. And the reason that happened, the reason it's natural, they didn't have to think about it. Nobody had to say, okay, well, what should Trent's kids do? Like they just did it. It's just in there because they're my boys. In the same way, it's just natural for my boys to do what I do. It would be odd if you brought somebody from a different household in and said, oh, you guys be like Trent. Like if it's a different father, and again, there's nothing wrong with this. No, one isn't better than the other. But if it's a different father who's in, you know, to different types of things. He, he's maybe, I've never seen Star Wars, but maybe he's watched a whole lot of Star Wars and he's really into music, which I can't, I can play Spotify, but nothing else. And, 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 the, and the garage has been turned into, you know, a, 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 what do you call it? A studio, like all those types of things. And they come out, you know, I don't know what those kids do. They're gonna do something different than what my kids do because they're emulating the father. And you know this from experience, especially if you had a dad who was present, you wanted to be like him. And if he was bad, you still took what he did as the true north for what you weren't going to do. It was still the thing that you took your P's and Q's from, either what I want to be or what I don't want to be. We learn and become who we are by who we imitate, by who, we show, by who we're around. Parents, you know this, your kid starts hanging out with a different little group of friends and you're like, what are you? Wait, you don't talk like that. And you, then if some of his friends come over and they're all just little clones. They're all, the same, they're all saying the same stupid stuff. They're all dressing the same. They're all wearing the same stuff. They're wearing boat shoes with high Nike socks. You're like, why y'all, this, y'all look stupid. Do you know you look stupid? Like <laughs> they have a fanny pack on. You're like, why are y'all wearing fanny packs? Like, dude, they're imitating. Again, no, no teenage boys is like, you know what I really need today? Like a fanny pack. No, you only get a fanny pack. You only get a fanny pack because you see other dudes doing it. That's the only reason. You imitate because you want to fit in. And I've got my own set of stuff. I wore shell necklaces and had, you know, stupid stuff. And we all, every generation has its own stupid stuff. And we can pull up your pictures and find out all of you guys' stuff too. Y'all have some good stuff. <laughs> and we did that because we want to fit in. And what, what Paul is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is you have a father. And the imitation that we do from him is not us trying to be imita- like, 
like we get this word wrong sometimes. We think imitate and we think like imitation stuff. It's got bad connotations, but what I need you to understand here is we don't imitate God to get his love, approval, or affection. We imitate God because we have his love, approval, and affection. So when it says be imitators of God, what we've got to grasp, what we've got to understand is that that's something that we're living from. That's something that we have. To, to help us kind of grasp this, because I, I get stuck on that word imitate. Because I hear other stuff that Paul said, we, in, I think it's Galatians 2.20, he said, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. He said, my old life has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, my old life has been crucified. And I don't know how much you know about crucifixion, but there's only one person that made it through one of those. So he says, my old life is crucified, which means it's dead and buried. And the new life I now have, I don't have resurrection power in and of myself. My new life is raised up and it's Christ living through me. So I go like, well, who is imitating who then? And what parts of God do I imitate? God's all knowing, all powerful, all judging. He makes the calls on everything. Are those the things I imitate? What am I supposed to imitate of this God? And we can kind of bump into this. And when I hit this as a, as a young Christian, I was honestly frustrated because I read the gospels and I see God living the life on earth where I am currently. And I go, well, I want to just imitate Jesus. I want to, you know, I had the bracelet on my arm, on my wrist. What would Jesus do? And I want to just imitate all the things that Jesus did. And I bumped into probably some of the things that you bumped into. That's really frustrating. Somebody slaps me on the right cheek. I don't, I don't want to turn the other one. You know, I don't, I don't want to stand up for the weak because I'm worried that somebody will find the weaknesses in me. I see all the things that Jesus did and I'm like, I, I ain't got that kind of prayer life. I can't heal. I'm not healing people. I'm not casting out demons into pigs on hillsides. Like you get frustrated. It'd be like if I said, hey, um, you know, go golf like Roy McElroy or go throw touchdowns like whoever throws touchdowns. You're like, I can't, I can't do this because I'm me. And what you have to understand is that that's the problem is you're still you. And the good that comes out of you is not you. The best place I could take to understand this is I'm going to take us to somebody who's way smarter than I am. Um, I recommend only one ever devotional. I, I'm, again, I, I don't have time to go into all that stuff now. I don't think you need a Christian devotional. I think you need the Bible and you need your own prayer life. If I was to ever say one, all right, that you read after you've already spent at least 30 minutes alone in prayer and in God's word, the thing you pick up to be supplementary to your Christian walk, not the main course, is a little book by a guy named Oswald Chambers called My Utmost for His Highest. He helped me understand this in a way like nobody else has. And I wanna try to help you understand it by using his wisdom and knowledge. Here's what he said about this. And again, this is one of those parts where you're gonna have to be a Christian who has his whole brain on today, okay? So take a deep breath and lean in because again, he's a dead guy. So he kind of talks like dead guys talk. Bigger words, all right, let's lean in. We're a blue collar church, but we can get this kind of stuff. Let's lean in. He says, the one marvelous secret of a holy life lies not in imitating Jesus, but in letting the perfections of Jesus manifest themselves in my mortal flesh. Sanctification is Christ in you. It is 
his wonderful life that is imparted to me in sanctification. Sanctification means the impartation of the holy qualities of Jesus Christ. His patience, his love, his holiness, his faith, his purity, his godliness. That is manifested in and through every sanctified soul. Sanctification is not, listen to this. Sanctification is not drawing from Jesus the power to be holy. It is drawing from Jesus the holiness that was manifested in him. And he manifests it in me to put it in as much Ola Jackson McDonough terminology as I can. If there is anything good in you, it is not you. See, we get big for our britches and we go, well, look at me just practicing my patience. Holy Spirit's really working through me today. <laughs> look at me practicing my boldness. I share my faith with 17 people at work today. Look at me, you know, practicing, you know, all these different things or I'm so devoted or everything else. And, 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 and this is where you're, you're idolatrous and you don't even realize it. You're worshiping the way you worship. And, and what he's saying here, what Paul is saying, when he says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, it's understanding this now the son who's living through you. You're not imitating as old you, you're imitating as new you and new you is Jesus. And so when I do these things, like I've had these moments and I know you have too, where you just bump into something in parenting and you go, I do not have what it takes. You bump into something at work, you're leading a church as a 33 year old that's this size and you go, I do not have what it takes. You're in a marriage and it's going through crazy conflict and you're going, I do not have what it takes. I don't know how to navigate. This. You're in debt. You go, I don't know what to do. You're in depression. I don't know what to do. I am anxious. I don't know how to navigate out of this. And Jesus is like, yes, I do. Let's work. You're my son. I'm going to live through you. Let your old self die so I can come forward and live through you. It's not you tapping into the power of my holiness so that it can come through you. It's you tapping into my holiness and letting that be manifest through you. So anytime there's patience, it's Jesus' patience. Anytime there's boldness, it's Jesus' boldness. Anytime it's compassion, it's Jesus' compassion. Anytime it's unheard of forgiveness, it's Jesus' unheard of forgiveness. And it's him working through you. Now this should be a little freeing to go, Jesus, it's all on you. But at the same time, it should be a little terrifying because you have to move yourself out of the way. Jesus is not gonna put you in a, a arm bar or figure four leg lock. He's not gonna put you in a headlock and make you tap out and surrender. You're gonna have to lay your life down by yourself. Now he'll woo your heart to the place where you see the blazing center of the glory of God, his cross, his love, his mercy displayed on that to where you're more apt to lay that down. But until you really see him for what he did for you, until you really see the love of the father displayed on the cross, you will not lay your life down. But when you do, it becomes natural because you see him treated like the son of disobedience, like the daughter of disobedience, like the rebel, hateful, sinful person you are so that you can be treated like the loved, beloved, cared for, righteous, perfect son that he is. Now what's wild here, again, to, to let you get back into your britches a little bit, the reason that you can live this way and have some confidence and to an extent, a little bit of a chip on your shoulder all right, and I think there's some Christians, got, we got to put a little bit of chip back on our shoulder, right? All right, we're fighting against Satan like in the darkness of this world. There has to be a little bit of like, mm, I got on my side. And instead of walking around like, 
human Eeyores, all right? Jesus didn't go to the cross, rise from the grave, give victory, resurrection power for us to be Christian Eeyores. Like, we got some, some more stuff in here, all right? So when God looks at you, this is why he can say he looks at you as beloved children. It's not because you're doing good things, so God's proud of you as a kid. It's because when he looks at you, he sees Christ in you. You're, you're a dearly beloved kid because when God looks through you, he sees right through your shame. He sees right through your depression. He sees right through your anxiety. He sees right through your pornography addiction. He sees right through your sloth. He sees right through your overeating. He sees right through your cutting. He sees right through all of that. And he sees his son inside of you. And this God, I'm telling you, friend, this God never looks down on his son and is not pleased. And so he never looks down at you and is not, he, he, he never looks and just, and again, the things, the sinful things on the outside of you, they do break his heart because they're, because they're things that are keeping his son's life from shining forth through yours. And that's why they break his heart. Because he knows that there's so much more that you're, that you're again, saying, I, I want to, I don't trust you yet with this. But remember, you're beloved children by a beloved father. So you can trust him. If there's one thing about this God I know is you can trust him. So he goes on to verse two. If you can get that, you got a lot. Verse two, he then says, okay, so here's what we got to do. If we're imitating God as dearly beloved children, now he says, this is, this is what we do. This is part B of how we imitate. We walk in love, just as Christ. Again, he points it right back to Christ. I'm not asking you to imitate some ethereal thing that's out there. Like go to the man. We imitate Christ. We walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, a little pro tip on being able to understand Paul. A lot of times to understand what in the world Paul is after, you have to read him in reverse, okay? So he's saying, we gotta walk in love. As Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us. So when you hit this and go, well, what does that mean? How do I do that? He doesn't answer it here. He answers it here. So we got to walk in love. What does that mean? It means I, for Jesus, his walk in love was giving himself up for us. But he didn't just give himself up for us just because he felt obligated. He gave himself up for us because he loved us. Because he loved us. And so now we got to ask the question. Now we're getting back into the practical. Okay. If I'm to walk in love and the way Christ walked in love was he gave himself up for us. Well, how did he give himself up for us? Because if I know how he gave himself up for us, then I'll know how to walk in love. And that's what we're gonna spend the rest of our time walking through. How did he give himself up for us? First and foremost, he gave himself up for us willingly. In John 10, 15, he said, I lay my life down for the sheep. I'm not, nobody's making me do this. Nobody's twisting my arm. The same way that God the Father is not gonna force you into surrender, he didn't even force his own son into surrender. He said, I have the authority to lay my life up, lay my life down and to take my life up. And then he goes on to 10, 18. And he says, I have the authority to lay my life down and take it up. And this command was given to me from the Father. My whole purpose here is to do obediently the will of the Father, not out of obligation, but because out of love and alignment that I am with his grand plan to rescue you and me. 
And see, it's, it's borderline blasphemy to say that Jesus went to the cross because he loves me so much. If you leave that sentence right there, you're bordering on blasphemy. You've created a you-centered gospel that is not centered on God. The primary, first and foremost reason why Jesus went to the cross was to honor and glorify and be obedient to his father because not he loved you, but because he loved his father. And he knew how much his father loved you. Nothing pleases that father more than to have you in the family. This is the gospel. So how did he do it? First of all, he did it willingly. He did obedience to the father. And then next, brutally, he did it into suffering and death. Mark 10, 33 through 34. Jesus is calling the shot. He knows what's gonna happen. He has set his face towards Jerusalem and he tells his apostles what is gonna happen. He says, I'm gonna be handed over to the authorities. And then in gruesome details, he says, I will be spit on. I will be flogged. I will be killed. And then I will rise again. He tells them what it'll cost. He says, what, what in the world does giving myself up look like? It looks like not just dying a nice peaceful death and then letting an inheritance go to people. It looks like a brutal, painful death. An unheard of death. How did he give himself up? For us. That's what five two is all about. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He totally would have done it for you if it was just you in the world, but you gotta remember that he did it for us. So this makes it inexcusable. Now for me and you to look at our neighbor and to lose respect for them. This makes it inexcusable now for me to hold a grudge with somebody who is in the body of Christ. This makes it inexcusable because if he did that for us, that means he did it for them. The same way he did it for me. That means that I now never have to question their value. Jesus made it very clear. God made it very clear that their value is his son for you and for them. And lastly, how did he give himself up? For redemption. That's Ephesians 1.7. There's redemption through his blood. There's forgiveness from our trespasses. We have been redeemed. We've been given this new life. We've been fully redeemed. The payment was paid in full by him. And so if this, so he says, walk in love. So what does love look like? It looks like giving myself up. It looks like laying myself down. It's Mark 10, 45. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. That's walk in love. And if he says, okay, this is how Jesus walked in love. He gave himself up. Now our question is, well, how do we give ourselves up? Because if our call is to walk in love, that means I've got to give myself up. What in the world does that look like for me? It looks like the exact same thing. Because again, whose life is it being lived through us? It's Jesus. So how will I walk in love? I will willingly give myself up for other people. Willingly means I'm not gonna look for other stuff to give in return. I'm gonna willingly do this. I'm gonna look for opportunities to do this. I'm gonna look for opportunities to lay my life down so that your life can be lifted up so that you will be lifted up when you see the father for who he really is through the way I'm humbling myself, going to the back of the line, understanding that that's actually the place where Jesus is the most. I, I lay my life down willingly for the sake of others. That's what it means to walk in love. It, what does it mean to, to give myself for, for others? It means that I do it not in obligation to the Father, but in obedience. Love-filled, trust-filled obedience to the Father. And here's, this is where it's good. Because some of you, you're, you're like me. You think cynical first, and then you think biblical. Because I go, well, God... 
I'm going to do that to them and I will never be repaid. There will, I'm going to do that to them and they're going to never recognize how much sacrifice that cost me. They don't understand how much time it took out of my life for me to answer that phone call, show up at that thing, do that thing. They don't understand that. And God goes, yeah, I know. And you don't understand all of it either. (laughs) And this is where we have this, if you really grasp it, we have this crazy ability to release ourselves of the burden of knowing for sure that we're repaid. See, at the end of the day, the big things that somebody has taken from me in life, the person who took them, they can't repay it anyway. You can't bring that relationship back. You can't take back my purity. They can't give you your purity back. They can't give you a father back. They can't give you a marriage back. They can't give you those things back anyway. So we're foolish if we just sit around and wait for them to do all these things, expecting that if I withhold this forgiveness or I withhold this thing and I'm just still sitting out here kind of with my arms crossed, wishing that you would be able to repay me for the harm that you did me without first and foremost going to you and trying to be able to make it right and just knowing that like, hey, at the end of the day, I need to forgive and, I'll, and I'm never gonna be repaid when I know that I have a father who promises that anything that I let go of, anything that I release, anything that I sacrifice in the name of Jesus for his glory to be spread, I will be repaid a hundredfold. That my God, when it all comes to the end, he will make sure the accounts are balanced. He is a righteous judge. I don't have to be the judge and jury here on planet earth. I don't have to make sure I'm paid back. He says, I promise. When it's all said and done, it'll be even. It'll be just. It'll be right. So I can... I can give myself up because I know what I'll get back for giving myself up is more glorious than they ever could have given me in return because it didn't come from a human. It came from the father. Here's a hard one. We don't like this stuff. If I want to walk it in love and that means that I give myself up for others, that means I got to willingly go into suffering and even potentially death. heavy but Jesus said take heart guys I mean I can I can't you just can't you just see him up there in the room they don't have any idea what's going on he just got through telling him he's going to be spit on whipped and flogged and he's going to die and the thing that they did after that they're like well Jesus tell us who can who's the greatest in the kingdom can I sit on your right hand or left hand like it completely went over their head and he's in the room and he's continuing to tell these guys over and over again, like, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be crucified. They're gonna strike the shepherd and the sheep are gonna scatter. He's telling them all these things. And then he kind of looks around and there's this moment in John where he goes, guys, but listen, hear me, don't miss this. Take heart. I've overcome the world. In this world, he goes, guys, in this world, you will have trouble. It's not avoidable, it's not optional. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Now, here's what's wild. I love this, this is just gangster Jesus. Um, at that moment, had he overcome the world? Had he rose from the grave? Whoo, I love that. There's just something about that. I've overcome it. Man, that's, that's, just, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Of like, there's just gotta be this something in us, man. This, this Holy Spirit confidence knows that there's power in our words because they come from the mouth of God. Like, man, there's gotta be something there. He says, I've overcome the world. And that's where he goes, take heart. Like, I, I got you. We're good. I, I, I'm gonna be living in you. And so you, you, you'll be okay. I've overcome so that you can be overcomers. 
and I turn this thing that could be the worst possible thing that they could do to you into the best possible thing that they could do to you because I killed death. Let's take a step further. I murdered death. It was premeditated. He said, (laughs) again, go back to the room. He says, I have overcome. He had a plan. He knew how he was going to do it. Like in speaking in in law terms, and I know this stuff because I'm having to research it right now, that would be first degree murder. Premeditated, with a plan, deliberate. We want to walk in love. I'm not doing it for me. I'm not doing it for my likes, approval, acclaim. I'm doing it for them, for them. And again, no one is it's for God's glory ultimately, but I am doing it for them. And only God knows your motives, but it's got to be for them. If you're trying to do them, trying to get them to do those things so that you feel better about how they reflect you, parents, you're not really doing it for them. You're doing it so those people would think good about you. As a conviction that I felt this week. Do I want to be known as a godly dad or do I want to just have godly kids? I don't care what anybody knows me as. It's not about me. Do I want to be known as a good pastor or do I want to just have a church that loves Jesus? I don't really care if I'm known as a good pastor. As long as the church loves Jesus, I don't care. I don't care what they know me as. They can call me a hypocrite. They can call me a liar. They can call me a blasphemer. They can call me whatever they want. As long as the church loves Jesus, as long as they lift up Jesus, I'm fine. And there's free, I'm telling you guys, there is freedom and self-forgetfulness and other focusedness. And he says, and I do that. And this is where it gets a little different for us and for Jesus. Jesus did it for our redemption. We give ourselves up for other to walk them right up to redemption. Again, you can't redeem anybody. They've already been redeemed. They just got to accept that or not. But you can write up, write, you can live a life in a way that shows them that debt that was paid. You can live a life in a way that helps them see that they have been redeemed. You can see the cross through your life. And then you take them right there to the line. And they understand, man, I've been redeemed. There's been forgiveness that's been poured out and it's made available to them. So he says these words and Walk in love to understand what this means. It means to live a life where you love others the way that Christ loves you. I I can't make it any more simpler than that. That's what it means to walk in love, to live a life where you love others the way that Christ loves you. Willingly laying it down, obedient to the Father, and to suffering and death for the sake of others and for their redemption. Last half of this little passage, he says, he, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What Paul is doing here is he's referring back to the Old Testament and how things happened in the Old Testament. Now in Old Testament, when there was a sacrifice to God, the priest, one time a year, you would have to come in and get atonement for your sins. And there always had to be bloodshed because then I know church doesn't like to talk about blood anymore, but here we are, all right? What they would do is you would go before the high priest and you would bring in your lamb from your house. And it was again, a lamb that was almost like a family pet that you'd grew up and you knew it was for the sake of sacrifice though. And you would take that and usually the head of the household, the family, he would come in and he would put his head on the lamb. And then he would begin to confess the sins to the high priest. He would mention them, say them out loud. And as he's saying these sins, what the priest would do is he would take a knife and he would cut the neck of the lamb and the lamb would begin to bleed out. I'm sorry if this is too gruesome for you. But that thing inside of you that just went, ugh, that's exactly what they wanted to feel. That was the intentionality behind it. So that they understood that sin costs blood. And it has to be shed for it to be covered. This happened all the way back in the garden. They had fig leaves and everything else. And God said, fig leaves aren't gonna cut it. And what did they go and get? They had to go kill an animal. It says that they had animal skins then. You don't get skin of an animal. It wasn't snake skin. Like that'd be uncomfortable anyway. Like 
They had to get real skin. They had to sacrifice an animal. And then that's what they used as their coverings. And it's always been this way. And the point that he's trying to make here when he says that this is the sacrifice is he's pointing to Hebrews 7, 27 gives us an idea. It says he had no, the he here is, is God. He had no need like the high priest to offer sacrifices daily. So Jesus, you don't have to go back to him again. Jesus, would you please forgive me of this sin? Will you please forgive me of that sin? Will you please forgive me? Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross again for every new sin that you commit. He didn't need to do that once and all every day. He did it first for his own sins, what the priest did. The priest did it for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since Jesus did this once for all, when he offered up himself, once for all, when he offered himself up for me and you, the sacrifice has been paid as a fragrant offering to make you a child. And as a child, you know that you have God's love last verse I'll leave you with here. Romans 5, 5, man, this hit me like a ton of bricks this week. I love this. And this begins to actually take us to the place where when you understand, again, to make this, boil this down to as simple as I possibly can for you, you've got to understand what God has done and be blown away, like put in on your butt by what God has done. And then, and only then can you actually go out and live out this life. And that's why I'm, I'm taking as much time as I am on two verses today, because next week I'm going to talk about sex. Next week I'm going to talk about greed. Next week I'm going to talk about the stupid words we say, which I view, if you haven't looked around, it's like our country, sex, greed, and stupid words. All right. I'm going to talk to you a lot, a lot of practical things next week, but if you don't understand what God has done, you're never going to understand, never going to be able to live out what we actually need to do as God's people in a corrupt Babylon land. Got me? So here's what he did. God's love, love, not wrath, not righteousness, not even morals. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What this means, oh gosh, this means God just takes his love. Again, I can't even begin to get my mind around the love of the Father, but he takes that love and then he just takes it in a big five gallon bucket and says, I'm putting this in your heart. And he shakes it out to the very last drop. He says, this is the love that's inside of you now. Would you please let it come out? Would you please let it come out? I've, I've poured my love, my sacrificial love, my all-knowing love, my purpose-filled love. I've poured this love into your life by the power of my Holy Spirit. And the fact that you have a Holy Spirit that convicts you when you do stupid things. The fact that you have a Holy Spirit that says, hey, you probably should give them a little bit of money. The fact that you have a Holy Spirit that says, you need to speak up right here because they're saying a lot of stupid things. The fact that you have a Holy Spirit that says, move towards this conflict, let's solve it for the glory of God. The fact that you have a Holy Spirit that says, let's work, 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 so we can give away as much as we possibly can. That's a seal and a sign and a promise that you're one of God's kids. So listen, some of you have been feeling conviction the last few weeks, you've been feeling conviction. The conviction is not a sign that you're doing a bunch of crazy, stupid stuff wrong and God hates you. That conviction is the Holy Spirit going, you're a child, you're a child, you're a kid, you're a son, you're a daughter. Come on, you got this, we got this. I'm gonna work through you, let's do this. God poured out his love into your heart and I'm the one who's here now navigating how to get that love out of your life. And so we come to this place now where, man, like I'm gonna give you the most like practical way to try to live this out. You gotta understand this. If you want a different kind of life, you gotta know a different kind of love. And to know that love, it's gotta come out of our life. Here's what you need to do. <laughs> First of all, it starts internal and then it finds its way out. Okay, you gotta know that. We're not trying to outside in this thing. Say in your head, a little quick prayer. Jesus help me love them like you do. When you bump into a coworker, family member, spouse, kid, you name it another human being. It can be a Christian or non-Christian. Doesn't matter, really. I want you to say in your head, Jesus, 
Help me love them like you love them. Now, usually we never get to this part right here. We just go, Jesus, help me love them like you love them. We pray that in the morning before our work day or maybe pray on Monday. We say, Jesus, help me love them like you love them. And then we feel like, you, when you say that, you should be looking for ideas how, right? <laughs> but what we do is we just go fill our minds with all the other ideas of the world. We get on TV or we get on our phone or we do all these other types of things and we start checking email and we expect God to just kind of like, drop some crazy idea down our lap. But here's what I found. That usually doesn't happen that way. So I'm going to see a person. This is our challenge to you this week. I'm going to see a person and I'm going to pray, Jesus, help me love them like you do. And then I'm going to say out loud to them, how can I help you? Now, the reason I'm going to, I told you to say it like that is because if you say, how can I, like Christ, lay my life down for you the way he has laid his life down for me? They're, they're probably gonna think you're odd, okay? Now, again, you may, you may have some people who you can do that with. I could do that with my wife. I could do that with some brothers and sisters in the saints here at MCC. But with your coworker who doesn't know Jesus, this may be where you lean in. And eventually you get to, the, you know, you get to that place. And if you do give something to him, say, hey, I, I don't know, I'm not the one giving to you this. I'm giving you this in Jesus' name. He's the one giving you this. I pray that you see him through what I'm giving you. But you ask this question, how can I help you? And what you need to understand is what they tell you back when you ask this question, how can I help you? It is going to demand a sacrifice from you. It may cost time. It may cost mental capacity. In some instances, it may cost money. But when you realize the exorbitant amount of debt that you owed that was been paid for you, you are quick to be generous with time, money, mental capacity, energy, whatever. You're quick to, to dole that out because you realize that God spared no expense, even his own son at the cross for you. And so you ask very simply, hey, how can I help? And this is where the things of God that we should have in our head and our heart, start finding their way out of our life. And we learn Christ because we're living Christ. And today we're gonna to end by taking communion. And this is, this is why we're gonna end here is there is no greater example of I am giving, I'm walking in love than walking up the hill called Golgotha to Mount Calvary and being whipped and brutally mutilated nails through hands and feet, bloodshed for you. To now go, okay, I know what it looks like to walk in love. It, there is no way that walk in love equals a life without sacrifice. And you will wade into sacrifice this week by answering or asking that simple question. How can I help? How can I help? It's not a complicated question. And so I pray as you commune with Jesus, thank him for what he did to help you, to heal you, to make you new. And then even now begin to ask him to bring that person to mind so that you can lay your life down for them the way he laid his life down for you. Let's pray. Jesus, be with us as we meditate on your sacrifice. Fill our hearts with your grace and mercy not so that we can become vessels of storage, but so we can become vessels through which it pours to the people around us who are in desperate need of your love.
and grace and healing. In your name.